Uh, well, I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes I find myself wondering how I should respond in certain situations, or more usually, how I should have responded. Um, uh, whether it's in my marriage, uh, do I selfishly serve my own agenda, or, I, or do I consider the interests of my wife ahead of my own? A couple weeks ago, I went on a date with uh, my wife, Cammie, and we went down to uh, Starbucks by Chapters in Shaughnessy, and it was a uh, night, it was kind of rainy, it was cold, and uh, it's evening time, so you know that if you've been in Shaughnessy with movie nights, that parking lot gets quite full quite quickly. And so we were coming in there, and as I was driving in, I saw like there was an open parking spot kind of down the aisle a little ways. And so I like was going to get ready to pull in there, and Cammie noticed that there was one right by the front door. She's like, Sam, go over here. Well, I totally disregarded her comment, and I just went right to the spot that I had seen down here. And, uh, and so I, because I was just locked in, I had this moment of where I'm going to park there, and I totally disregarded her comment of saying, I'm kind of cold. Can we park right by the door? Well, I, the date kind of started off a little rough uh, for us. I had a little bit of a hole that I had to climb out of, uh, but things got back on track. Uh, but sometimes even with my girls, I come home after a long day work and a, the garage door goes open. I have two girls standing at the door. Daddy, let's play some games. And maybe it was a really tired day. And I come in, I was like, do I just selfishly kind of do the minimum, you know, play one little game? Or do I kind of say, oh God, just give me strength and, and play another game and another game, even when they keep asking to play more and more games. Or maybe at work even, Sometimes you have those days where you, maybe you have a problem with somebody or somebody's kind of bothering you. Do you say, well, I was right. You know, uh, if that person wants to make peace with me, let them make the first move. Uh, do I worry really about saving face or do I do whatever it takes to make things right? Or even in our world, and we all know there's irritating people in our world. Uh, there's uh, people that will not help me in any way. They do not know anybody. They don't open any doors for me. Shouldn't I be spending time with people who are going to help me move forward? So the reality is, do I treat others with condescension? Maybe it's because of who they are, their background, or what they look like. Do all people, no matter who they are, really matter to me? And I imagine you found yourself in certain situations where you didn't know what to do either. Maybe in your marriage today, you're wrestling with, what do I do? Do I keep giving when I'm getting nothing in return? Or do I try and get what's mine? Maybe you have enemies, people that you dislike, People who have the wrong ideals or maybe even the wrong religion. You know, do I go to Twitter and say a nasty comment about them? Or do I find ways to love and serve them? Well, it's great that the Bible has plenty to say about these things and how we to live with our spouses, our kids, our coworkers, our classmates, or our world. And so we're in this series called The Transformed Way of Living. And as we continue through the book of Acts, we're in Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles or a smartphone and you want to flip over there to Acts chapter 2, and we just want to quickly review what we've touched on to help set up the passage that we're going to be looking at uh, today. And if you're here and you don't have a Bible, we'd love to be able to get you a Bible. You can just stop at our Welcome Center after the service, and we'd love uh, to be able to give you one so you can check that out. Well, remember where we came from the last few weeks. Peter has really just finished the sermon of all sermons. I mean, he really set the standard of what a sermon is to look like. And he was connecting the dots of how the hope of Israel is realized in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so now we have 3,000 people who have subscribed to this way of seeing this world. They've become Christians. And the movement of Christianity is now on its way. And so Luke, the author of Acts, trying to give us an idea of what happens next, gives us an idealistic picture of what the earliest Christian community looked like. And so we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 42 to 47. This is the word of God. 
Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray uh, this morning that uh, your spirit would open our eyes to the truth of what you want to teach us today. And I pray that you would give us eyes of faith and ears to hear where the Spirit is speaking. Father, form us, transform us to a new way of living here at Southview. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this verse is one of the few summary passages that Luke writes to kind of give us an overall picture of what is going on, all the while making some theological statements along the way. So he's basically saying that this is what the first believers did and looked like when they came to the realization that Jesus was the real deal and the realization of their hope and salvation. So what we've been journeying through in Acts, what we've seen already is the long promised gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has died. He rose again. He's ascended into heaven. Pentecost has come. The Spirit is now being poured out on all flesh. And now we come to this spirit-filled church here in front of us, and Luke begins to lay out for us the way the first church started living out her life together. Now, we can be tempted to think that the first church in Acts 2, kind of in the same way we think of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2, we're tempted to think of the church as being perfect or spotless, untouched by sin and corruption. But the difference between Genesis 2 and Acts 2 is that Genesis 2 comes before the fall of man. Now, if you remember from our creation weekend a few weekends ago, we saw the four movements of scripture. We have the creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Well, Acts 2 comes after the fall. So the church in Acts is not perfect. They're simply pursuing the right things. And so there are four things to which these early Christians devoted themselves to, and they're introduced to us as priorities of the community of faith. These were really the fruit of genuine conversion and of life in Christ. And so the first believers were fulfilling and incarnating what they saw as the promise and fulfillment of the kingdom of God. They were living to the best way they could what the kingdom of God should look like. I mean, Jesus was constantly telling them over and over again, the kingdom of God is here now. And they, through their actions, were making that a reality. And so there was this new kind of power that we saw in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where it said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, which then led to a brand new kind of community. You see, it's no longer just about your relationship with God. It's how you affect those around you, and it starts really in the church. The church lived in such a way that they were in favor with the community around them. And because of that, people were daily coming and being added to it. Even in Acts chapter 4, just flip over a page in verse 32, Luke gives us another summary statement where he says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So people were saying, you guys are different. I've seen a lot of religion, but something here goes beyond religion because the way 
you're of one heart and soul. The way you're meeting the needs of everybody. The way you're serving and loving and putting those people around you ahead of yourself. I don't get that in the world today. How do we get in? See, Jesus says, I've given you here on earth my spirit in your life to transform you and to transform the way you start loving people. And that really is gonna be your greatest testimony to the world. In fact, John 13, 35 says, that's how everyone will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. So we get a new power. Then comes this new community. Uh, we just had a, a married life event uh, this weekend, yesterday, looking at uh, really the wow of Christmas and how to bring the wow back into our marriages this Christmas season by choosing to treat our spouse uh, better than ourselves. And, and we had lots of fun. It was a great time. But it really got me thinking of how Christmas, of course, is about the birth of Christ. God became flesh. And that just makes me want to go, wow. And then what we're reading here in Acts 2 is about the birth of the Christian church. And I think in many ways, what happened at Christmas explains what happens in the early church. And what happens in the early church explains what Christmas is all about. So before we get some of these priorities or these core practices of the early church, I want to look at what made the earliest Christian community so different from the culture surrounding them. And then secondly, I'd like to look at the source of what that difference was. So what the difference was, and then secondly, what was the source of that difference. So what was the difference? If you notice in verse 40 and 41 where it talks about the fact that the very first result of the very first sermon ever preached, 3,000 people were converted and brought into the faith, brought into the community of faith. And this is something that we know. It's a simple historical fact that for the first three centuries of the life of the Christian church, Christianity grew explosively. It grew to the point where it actually displaced the older Greco-Roman empire and culture itself in its way of thinking. It was that powerful. Why? It was because the first Christians, and then as they grew as the Christian community, it was attractively different. That's the only possible explanation. It was attractively different. But what was the difference? Well, I would suggest that in this very famous description of the earliest church, at the key to understanding that difference is in the very beginning of verse 42, where it says, and they devoted themselves. Now, the meaning of this phrase actually goes deeper than what our English translation communicates. Now, the Greek phrase here that is used is, I me proskartereo, which more literally means they existed to devote themselves. So their devotion to the teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers was not merely an important spiritual commitment or task for them, but it was a core expression of their existence, of their identity and source of being. They were transformed to a new existence or reality, a new way of living. Thus our series title, A Transformed Way of Living. Now in the Bible, the word devote means to give something away. In fact, in English, it means that as well, right? To devote yourself to something means you give yourself away to it. You set it apart. You set it aside. And that's the reason why some translations take this passage and actually say in verse 42, they gave themselves. They gave themselves away. It means to give oneself continually. The same word is used in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
So in our passage, they gave themselves away to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. But beneath that, they gave themselves away to God and especially to each other. In other words, what made the early Christians so unusual was this principle of radical unselfishness that had really never been seen before. It pervaded the whole way in which they did everything. They existed to give themselves away. So radical unselfishness, that's the principle that you see through the passage. So for example, down in verse 44, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now that was one of the most striking things that was happening in this culture at that time. Lucian of Samosata, who was an ancient Greek writer during this time period, he watched Christianity growing and he didn't like it. He wrote this, their founder, that's Jesus, their founder persuades them that they should be like brothers to one another and therefore despise their own privacy and view all their possessions as common property. So Lucian is reacting to the radical nature of the love of God that you can actually regard other people as brothers and sisters. And we see that right here. Instead of being selfish about their goods, their property, and their power, they share. Not only with one another, but with all who have need. Now as we're going to go through Acts, go even further in Acts, we're going to see that this wasn't communism. Communism is just sharing of goods. But it is an enforced sharing on the basis that no one has the right to own anything. This was completely opposite of communism. It was spiritual communalism. It was a radical unselfishness when it came to their possessions and their goods. But that's not all because the word together keeps coming up. It says in verse 44, all who believed were together. And then in verse 46, day by day attending the temple together. So they broke bread in their homes together. And remember who they were. Jerusalem during the great holy days and festivals was a gathering place from, for pilgrims from all around the world who spoke different languages. They were from very different cultures. They looked different. They were the ones who had become Christians and now they're doing really everything together. And so in spite of their cultural differences, in spite of the language, they're giving themselves away to each other. They're giving themselves away. And of course we know that most of the people were Jewish believers from different cultures around the world. As we saw, Peter addressed them a few weeks ago in his sermon in Acts 2, verse 22, where he said, men of Israel, who he was talking to. But by the time you get to Acts chapter 13, you will see African, Asian, Jew, Greek, Roman, all coming together and being together. So there was really an unselfishness and Christians were willing to give away their emotional involvement. They were giving away their money, give away their time, and just giving to each other to create this new community. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had the privilege, there was a number of Indian families here, uh, that part of Southview. Uh, they invited our pastors to uh, lunch, many of us pastors, they prepared this unbelievable uh, lunch for us, and it was so good. It was so spicy. Um, it was authentic Indian food, the kind that makes your eyeballs sweat, you know. It was really, really good. But it, just being there, it was just such a beautiful picture of these people just giving themselves away. Just giving themselves away. And I've, I've come far enough for you to now start to say, okay, wow, that's very warm and touching. Thanks for the hallmark moment, Sam. This has been great. But why was this so different? Is it really that different? Well, yes. 
Kenneth Scott Latterett, who is one of the great historians of early Christianity, has an essay in which he tries to understand why Christianity was so different and why it was so attractive, why it was so electrifying to people and why it spread. And he makes a list and he says, here's another reason for Christianity's success. And I'm quoting him. More than any of his competitors, Christianity attracted all races and classes. Judaism never quite escaped from its racial bonds. Christianity, however, gloried in its appeal to Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian. The Greek and Roman philosophies never really won the allegiances of the masses. They appealed to the educated, the morally and socially cultured. Christianity drew the lowly and the unlettered, yet also developed a philosophy of its own which commanded the respect of many of the educated. Christianity was for both sexes, while its rivals were primarily more for men and the church welcomed both rich and poor. And here's his conclusion. Latterit says, no other religion took in so many groups and strata of society. The question must be raised. Why this unprecedented comprehensiveness came to appear to the world first in Christianity? Now I want to press that question on you for a few minutes here. He says the question has to be asked. Why these ideas, why this unprecedented comprehensiveness first came into the world through Christianity? Now, this isn't going to be easy for us to answer, and I'll tell you why. Because it's hard for us to transcend our cultural moment, our historic moment. We're looking at this from where we stand right now, where the ideals of Christianity are not new anymore. And so you look back at this and say, why was this so different? Well, historians will tell you several things. Number one, the idea that you should love your enemies instead of killing everybody that wrongs you. The idea that you should forgive indefinitely. The idea that you should try to be reconciling with your enemies instead of always taking revenge on them first came from Christianity. No other culture, no other religion produced that. Secondly, other religions did care for the poor, but there was an energy coming out of early Christianity that was unprecedented for that. Christians really led the way in supporting widows and orphans. They passionately cared for the sick, the poor, and the disabled. And thirdly, their idea of universal human rights, that every human being, no matter what race or class, no matter how weak or talented, no matter how physically disabled, that every human being had universal rights. That is an idea that historians now have pretty much proven came out of Christianity. It didn't come from any other culture, it didn't come out of any other religion. And when the early missionaries went out and talked about loving your enemies, forgiving people, and reconciling, and caring for the weakest in society, including the poor, when they went out and the Greek and Roman elites like Lucian of Samosata, as well as the tribal chieftains and the kings of pre-Christian Europe, when they heard these ideas, they thought, that's crazy. That's crazy. A society based on Christian social ideals is going to fall apart. They said, for example, society is based on the idea of respect for strength. So if they see leaders forgiving instead of taking revenge on people, things are going to fall apart. And besides, the talented and the strong have always been the ones who triumph. It's the strong eats the weak. That's the nature of things. They thought it was crazy. And what happened? The ideals of Christianity, that all human beings have dignity, including the poor, that all people must be loved, including your enemies, that, they, that you should live a life of loving service and unselfish service to those around you, especially to your spouse and your kids. Those became the social ideals. They triumphed, right? And that's the reason why they make sense to us today. 
The only reason why any of those ideas make sense to you is because they came from Christianity. They came from nowhere else. Now you understand the importance of the question, why? Why was it that Christianity produced these ideas and brought them into the human race, into the world? And the answer is, at least one way to answer the question is, the wow of Christmas. See, when Jesus was about to die, the night before he was about to die, he prayed a prayer in front of his disciples. And his prayer went like this. Here's just one part of it. He's praying to his father and he says in John 17, verse 18, you sent me into the world. That's Christmas. Jesus Christ was the son of God who came into the world, was born as a human being. And he says, you sent me into the world. Then he says in verse 19, and for their sake, I consecrate myself. Or it's also translated, or I sanctify myself. And that word sanctify is a word that is used here in this context to mean I devote myself. Jesus is devoting himself to the redemption of his people. You sent me into the world, Father, to give myself away for their sake. And that's what he did. When Jesus Christ was born into the world, when he left all of his greatness, all of his power behind, what was happening at Christmas? He was giving himself away. He was devoting himself. He was emptying himself of his glory so that we could become beautiful. He was becoming of no reputation so that we could have a name with God for all eternity. He was losing all love, including his father's love. He was rejected by everybody so that we could be loved by God and live in love with God and others forever because he took the punishment that we deserved for our selfishness. Now, when Jesus did this, and Christians came to understand that he did this. Do you know what that meant? Christian realized for the first time in history, and by the way, the last time, there was a faith coming and saying, this is ultimate reality. No other religion before or since, no other philosophy has ever said that God gave himself away. And this is the heart of ultimate reality, to not hold on to your power, to not hold on to your wealth, to not hold on to your glory, but give it away. Give yourself away to other people. See, if God did this at Christmas, that is radical. That is astounding. That God would come to earth and become weak, become mortal, and die on the cross to atone for our sins. You see, our new existence now, our new identity is then to give ourselves away, just as Christ gave himself away for us. I mean, if he would devote himself and give himself away, that changes everything. It absolutely changes everything. And it did. It transformed the way they lived. I mean, look at this in a couple of examples of these marks of the first church. In verse 42, they devoted themselves then to the apostles' teaching. So the apostles' teaching was what they were focusing on was the person of Jesus. The words and works of Jesus were the main subject of their teaching. In other words, the content of the apostles' teaching was really the gospel. And for more than three years, they had been eyewitnesses of the perfect life of Jesus, as well as the devoted students of his teaching. They were closely, so closely associated with him that others noted, and even in Acts chapter 4, that they had been with Jesus. Therefore, the apostles' teaching covered many facets of divinely revealed truth, including historical truth, ethical truth, prophetic truth, theological truth, domestic truth, and eschatological truth. And really, the apostles' teaching was God's plan of redemption centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that he is the focal point of all God's purposes on earth. 
The fact that all people can know him and how people ought to live for him and the fact of his coming kingdom, his coming reign. And so the word of God is the foundation and starting point for every aspect of the Christian life. But not only did they devote themselves to this apostle's teaching, but the early church also devoted themselves to fellowship. And the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia, which simply means common participation in God, which is really what had drawn the early Christians together. And even the apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. So fellowship with God and true fellowship with others, they go together. That is why John said, we want you to have fellowship with us and our fellowship with the Father. So when we're talking about participation with God, we're talking about a sharing in. But this sharing in also results in a sharing out. In other words, these Christians who enjoyed their close fellowship, this common participation in God, inevitably shared what they had with one another. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And as followers of Christ, if we've learned anything from him, then we know, as Luke says in Luke 12, one's life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Or Acts 20, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So the standard really set before us is the standard of not being served. It is to serve. So really, our obligations as Christ followers is to use what we have for the benefit of others. So we see Christ is at the center. They're walking in community with others and they're serving those around them. Does it remind you of anything that you've maybe seen on our wall in our foyer? Look at that. Christ at the center of all that we do. Walking in community, the circle. Sharing in, which results in a sharing out going in every direction with the love of Christ. And you thought we just made this stuff up. There's a Christmas carol that we sing often that has a line, and it goes like this. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Mild he lays his glory by. To lay aside your glory, your honor, your interest is the heart of what happened to Christians when they understood the gospel. When they understood the reality of what God did, they began to practice what he did. They began to give themselves away because that's what Christ did. And so let me just show you how that worked out practically. Number one, if you lay your glory by like Jesus did, that means you get involved with the poor. That's not beneath you. You become unselfish with your things. You get involved with Operation Christmas Child, shoeboxes. And guess what? We have a packing party on Wednesday night. You're all invited. And if you can't come, you can grab some boxes at the Welcome Center or just start your own packing party. But you can be a part of bringing the love of Christ to children all around the world. 10 million boxes go out each year and you can be a part of that. You can come back in December and help with our Christmas hamper ministry. But help those in need. Don't treat others like they're beneath you. The way to lay your glory by like Jesus also means you're not condescending. There are irritating people in the world. Aren't there? There are people in the world who will not help you in any way. But if you're a Christian, 
you know that you were saved through the descent of Christ, the infinite descent of Christ from highness to lowness for you. Now, how in the world could you ever be condescending to anybody, no matter who they are, what they look like, what their background, no matter their religion, race, age, or gender? Do you see how the reality of what Christ did changes how we live? It also means that if you know what Jesus Christ has done, if you see him on the cross dying and forgiving his enemies, even as they are killing him, forgiving them, that's going to affect how you live. I mean, if Jesus Christ is dying for his enemies, and if you say you're a follower of Christ, how in the world can you go to Twitter or Facebook and say nasty comments about people? And that means when you have a problem with somebody, whether it's your spouse, a coworker, a classmate, don't you dare hold on to your glory. Don't you dare say, well, I was right. If that person wants to make peace with me, let them make the first move. No. Lay your glory by. Say, you know what? I think I was wrong here. I'm sorry. What can we do to make this right? You see, if you grasp the cosmic reality that God gave himself away, that will turn you into a completely different kind of person. And when a group of people are changed like that, get together, it's a brand new kind of community. It's a brand new kind of community. So, Sam, that all sounds great, but what do you want me to do? Well, I'm glad you asked. What should we do? What do we do with this? Well, I just have a few practical suggestions for you. This week, just this week, next seven days, make it real simple, this week, I invite you, if you're married, to put the needs of your spouse ahead of your own. Just choose to treat your spouse better than yourself. This week, your kids come home from school. You come home from work and see your kids. Play that one extra game with your kid. I invite you, just give yourself away to your kids. Say, hey, let's play again. This is awesome. God, help me, give me strength. I'm tired, but let's do this. This is awesome. I invite you to do one act of kindness for that coworker or that classmate that drives you crazy. This week, I invite you to do one act of kindness to that person that drives you crazy. I invite you to say a word of appreciation to someone working in the service industry, someone serving in the military or a, a police officer, a fire department person. I invite you to serve once a month in our two-year-old class on Saturday night. We currently can't launch this class because we are still in need of volunteers. It doesn't matter if you come to the 11 o'clock service, the 5.30 service, a Wednesday night service. You can come once a month on Saturday night and help serve with these families. And we actually have a, a board in the foyer with more information about how to get involved within this. And we really want to launch this class December 6th, but we can't get it going because we're still in need of people to help out. I invite you to give yourself away, maybe to serving two-year-olds on a Saturday night once a month. But I simply invite you to practice giving yourselves away this week, trusting that God will empower you. That God will empower you. And guess what? A really great spirit-filled church does all those things. And if we do all those things, we'll be more and more conformed to the image of the one who gave himself away for us. And so it's important to acknowledge that acts taken as a whole, does not hold up this depiction of corporate life as central or primary in the church's experience. 
It may represent the best of what God's people are capable of in the power of the Spirit. But after Ananias and Sapphira defraud the Jerusalem community in Acts chapter 5, we're really left looking in vain for any description of community life that approaches the radicalism seen in Acts 2. But this doesn't mean that hospitality, generosity, fellowship, and worship are not characteristics of the communities that the Spirit still creates. They are and they continue to be commended elsewhere in Acts. But Acts likewise concedes the flawed nature of us, believers, and our struggle really to achieve and maintain unity in the body of Christ. And so the description given in Acts 2 suggests what the Holy Spirit can do. And this passage in context indicates that the reign of the resurrected Lord Jesus creates the potential for mutual service that embodies God's justice in our world. And so the life and work of Christian community can reflect, even if only dimly, the reign of God that Jesus proclaimed while on earth. And so we cannot assume that this passage celebrates community or the church for its own sake. The community of faith really exists as an extension of the ascended Lord's commitment to bring salvation to the world. And friends here at Southview, we exist to give ourselves away just as Christ gave himself away for us. And the challenge for us today is to actually believe this about ourselves, to believe this about God. Because we can become easily frustrated in our attempts to build community that functions really as an authentic expression of the gospel, even if it must remain flawed expression. But it is empowering to know and to realize that we are not left to our own devices creating such an environment here. Acts 2 describes a community faith that operates in the power of the Spirit. So the virtues of justice and worship and common participation in God are not accomplishments of extraordinary people. They are signs of the Spirit within a community of people who understand themselves as united in purpose and identity. A people who exist, who have been transformed, who have a new identity that are giving themselves away because Christ gave himself away for us. So this week, if you find yourself in a situation at school, work, home life, whatever it is, and you're wondering, what do I do? What do I do in this situation? Remember, Christ came not to be served, but to serve. And just simply pray, God, help me to be like Christ in this situation to give my life away. And as we do in the power of the Spirit, God will continue to form a new community here at Southview where many in our community will come to see there's something different. There's something different there. How do I get in? Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for your word, how it, forms even me and my personal life with my wife, my kids, co-workers, my friends, my community. Father, I pray that we'd be a people marked by grace and love. For each church in Calgary, even this week, and I pray, Father, that you would continue to mold them and transform them into a new way of living. That our city would come to see, man, there's something different when Jesus is a part of people's lives. Well, Father, I pray that we would engage in this great mission of redemption. Really, as you seek to restore all of creation to yourself, as you continue to do that great work. So, Father, lead us all 
this week in these things in the power of your spirit to bring glory to your name as we simply give ourselves away. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.